Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I'm joined today by the usual crew. I am Natasha here. Natasha, how are you? I'm doing lovely, Alex. How are you? I'm tremendous, actually. I got up really early. I wrote many things and after this, I'm going to bed. So it's ideal. <laughs> we also have Danny Crichton here. Danny, was my intro full of enthusiasm? Did it meet your standards? Because we've had some complaints about this in the past and I want to make sure that I'm living up to your expectations. I thought it was Goldilocks principle right. Good. All right. That was almost a compliment, Alex. It was almost. It's almost a compliment. <laughs> Look, we talk about gold on this show a lot, so Goldilocks is useful. Look, from Danny not dissing you, that's a compliment. So I'll take it. Like, neutrality is very positive. <laughs> Lesson for life, honestly. As long yeah. as someone's not talking you, you're fine. All right. Anyways, we have a packed show. We're going to kick off with a fifth time the charm Chinese edtech IPO, not because we care about the company, but we want to talk about the regulatory environment a little bit. Then we have the Zomato, 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 the Zomato IPO. There we go. And then we got Discord, Apple, the TechCrunch list, a couple of great new funds, a thing called Nooks. And then we're going to wrap up with some alternative meats. So it's going to be a really jam packed show. But Danny, we're going to kick off with this Chinese edtech IPO which has a name that I am not going to ruin. So I'm going to have you introduce it. Jinzu Education is the first Chinese firm to go IPO post all the craziness in the last couple of weeks with Didi and the Chinese crackdown on overseas IPOs. Um, the company is focused on uh, vocational training, and they have more than 2,000 Chinese colleges on board on the platform. And I was reading about more than 500 paying subscribers. It's a fairly small IPO. They only did 12, 13 million in 2020 revenue with a target of, I think, 62 going up and they're targeting about, uh, what was it, a 50 million IPO. So th this is like a very, very small, this is not DD, this is not Ant, this is not any of the massive blockbuster IPOs we've been seeing over the last you know couple months. This is very small, but it's a huge deal because the Chinese clampdown on overseas IPOs has been going across all of the interwebs. All the IPOs have been pulled back. And so this is the first one to, as a test case, a little poke to see Will the bear strike or will it not? And because it's an ed tech company, there's even an extra layer there, which is that Chinese ed tech companies, specifically the ones that are New York listed, have been struggling over the past quarter. Alex and I wrote a piece about how it may be signaling an overall slowdown. But we know that there's even been regulatory pushback on tutoring companies in China. And that's also impacted the price of shares. So we're seeing this company really not exit at the most opportune time, which you kind of have to root for it. It's the underdog. Yeah, there, there's not only been a clampdown on overseas IPOs, but Chinese regulators have been clamping down specifically on tutoring companies. And that's led to a lot of short selling. So uh, GSX uh, TechEDU has been a popular one. All the short sellers who send me their research always seem to send me that company. And so it's it, it to me, it's like a, a classic company that's like in, in the worst possible position of clampdowns, which is perhaps why, Alex, they have attempted to go public, I guess, four times previously. And this is time number five. Well, you know what? They really nailed it this time because I was reading through their F1 filing, which is an S1 for foreign companies. And they have set a new high watermark for complex corporate structures. They have a, it, it looks like an org chart crossed with a, like a fractal is what this thing looks like. It's, it's in a, it does like, like 78 different companies. And I bring this up because what we've seen in the regulatory world is not just a crackdown on data inside of companies inside of China, but also a, a potential crackdown on the VIE model, which allows these companies to set up a Cayman domiciled entity mm -hmm. and then list kind of like an interest in that firm in New York 
that represents ownership of a Chinese company. And that may not work anymore. And so I was fascinated by the risk factors in this IPO because, Danny, uh, there are a few, you know, what were you looking for uh, to be scared of for this one? I mean, I think everything's scary, right? I think not only the regulatory clampdowns, you have fairly weak finances. Obviously, it's a market that's under incredible pressure. And then VIEs, which, as you mentioned, that's how Alibaba famously got listed mm-hmm. in 2014 in its IPO, have always been something of a hypothetical. It's fascinating. It's one of these structures that you just sort of accept as an investor that this is the way you're going to get access to some of these companies overseas. And I think post the DD situation and post Ant, there's just a realization that it was never kind of, it was always a mirage, right? It was never yes. a real kind of instrument. It's not a real company. You don't own shares in anything real. And at some point that matters, you know, it's kind of like an NFT, like you can hypothetically get value from something that doesn't really exist, doesn't really connect to anything in, in, in meat space. But at some point, you probably want to actually own something real. Yeah. And I'm just going to go ahead and grab a couple of notes here from the risk vector. So in every IPO filing, just so you know, the company has to list everything that can go wrong. Our growth might slow. Our customers might leave. There could be this. There could be that. The weather happens. You know, COVID-19 could happen again. And so when you read through these, it's it's often a lot of boilerplate. And then you kind of get into this one and you find a couple of notes about literally just the Chinese government and the regulatory environment. And it's, it's, it's relatively scary. So here's one of my favorites. We are subject to a variety of laws and other obligations regarding cybersecurity and data protection. And any failure to comply with applicable laws and obligations could have a material and adverse effect on our business, financial condition, and result of operations. And then it's like six paragraphs of how the Chinese world is changing. And I'm like, y'all going public now? Like, this is terrifying. Part of me is so happy that they are because selfishly, we get to watch someone test the waters in real time. And I feel like that's a dream, not because I want them to fail, but okay, well, thank you for doing it. We get to talk about it next week now and the week after and just see what happens. Well, I will say it's not just China that's clamping down. India has also been clamping down, not only on the internet, but on a lot of overseas filings as well. And so that brings us to a much larger IPO, Zomato, which is a part of, I guess, the first IPO of this new wave of you know, yeah. unicorns that are coming up through India. And so it's a huge test case for the Indian market, whether it can build successful, durable unicorns. What do we think about this company? Because I, I guess it was founded in 2007. Delivery, I don't know a lot about it. I was offered a bunch of research from people who were short selling it. For some reason, I'm always on these distribution lists, but I think it's a pretty bullish company. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, whoever's sending Danny all the goodies, alex.wilhelmatechcrunch.com. Come on. Like, like I, I get like crappy buy side research. I never get the real dirt. So like... <laughs> Stop sending me why things are bullish. I want the bearish stuff. Alex, have you not noticed that my brand is like negativity, <laughs> cynicism, and like everything's a fraud? You just That's li- why I get the sell side. That's, this is why everything's the a sell The short sellers are like, finally, my person. Yeah. <laughs> you literally just took over my early equity persona and then made me become the nice person. Like, unbelievable to me. All right. What to know about this motto IPO? Well, the thing that really stood out to me when I was digging through the filing uh, a little bit ago was the impact of COVID on its business. And so if you look at its kind of quarterly revenue in its first fiscal quarter of 2021, which I think is calendar Q2 of last year, it saw its revenue and kind of order volume drop by more than half. And so this is a business on the bounce. It has seen a rapid recovery in its scale. And so when we think about its historical results, we can't do the usual work that we do, which is, well, you know, year X, year Y, year Z, growth, 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 whatever. It's really kind of a wager on this broader set of companies that are going public now in India. And early indications show strong interest. I mean, we're seeing essentially kind of like uh, main investors in the IPO put up about 562 million so far. I've read reports of strong retail interest as well. 
And so the company is looking to raise about 1.2 at a roughly $9 billion valuation up from five and a half in its last private round. So signs look good. And to me, you know, despite India trying to bully Twitter and some other stuff, I mean, the Indian startup scene has been red hot and this just kind of fits right into that narrative. Totally. I mean, its closest competitor is Swiggy, who has investments from SoftBank Vision Fund 2 and Process Ventures. So not a casual small competitor. These are really two heavyweights. I think this Zomato's success or or not success when it prices will be watched by a lot of people in India. I'm fascinated by how the Indian market is going to look at a company with relatively sharp losses. Because in the US, we have a history of companies going public before they're profitable because there's a bias towards growth and an expectation of profits to come. And that's not the same climate everywhere. I mean, the European indexes can be a little bit different. And so I'm very curious to see how the Indian market approaches this particular company, given that it should be a bellwether for so many other startups. 100%. It is definitely a changing moment in how Indian startups work and act. Manish Singh wrote a really interesting dispatch from Bangalore, and it blew up. And there's a couple of tidbits that I want to draw out here because I think it gives a sense of how much it's changing, especially compared to things that at least we in where we are right now take for granted. So one thing that he mentioned is that India has produced a record of 16 unicorns this year, thanks to Tiger Global, SoftBank and Falcon Edge, which I haven't heard of before. Yeah, me either. That's a record. Number two is that it's surprising to see that some are now not engaging with funds at all for their seed financings. There are enough startup founders that have accrued capital naturally through exits through their own means that they're starting to fund. And these are all signs of like a maturing startup ecosystem, as well as Manish also bringing up how the talent is so lucrative that there's finally power in engineers' hands to ask for more money. And so I think you're exactly right, Alex. It's going to be watched by people in a changing mindset. I think if Zomato went public two or three years ago, completely different conversation. Danny, we have to talk about AI now. And I want to frame this in the context of uh, rising AI investment. And I want you to take us back in time to when you were a VC. How often did startups back then discuss actually using AI in their products? Like, was it a thing back then or did it come later on? It was definitely a thing back then. You know, I, I last was a VC 2015, 2017. So a couple of years ago, AI was definitely part of the story throughout that period of time. And then even prior to that, I mean, I, frankly, I feel like AI has always been the story since Google, you know, really try to make AI and intelligence with search a huge part of the story. Clearly, we're starting to see some exits from that market. And, and there are legitimately more and more companies that are doing real intelligence and not just sort of basic data correlations and analysis. So as an example, this week, Discord bought Centropy, which makes AI software that fights online harassment. And so the, the, the hope here, if I understand Centropy right, was to sort of augment human curators, trust and safety teams, moderators, to be able to do their jobs more effectively. You know, in some cases, it's very obvious that something is harassment or just bad messaging. In other cases, it was a, a mixed bag. And we, we see this sort of human AI hybrid approach in a lot of different markets. We see that in medical, in radiology. We're seeing that in, in sales, and we're going to get to chorus in a bit here. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's been the, the model that has been super successful. And we didn't get a, a sort of price for this acquisition, but the company did raise $13 million, led by initialized capital and a couple others. Yeah, so I'm presuming it's, it's a relatively material exit. But I, I asked about the AI world back when you were a VC, because there was this period of time when every single startup was doing, quote, quote, AI. And it really feels like now the technology has advanced to the point in which we're seeing actual applied what I might call like like advanced ML. I don't know. It's AI is always going to be kind of a, a loaded phrase, but it seems to be showing up in, in ways that work and leading to exit. So it's fun to see that cycle end up kind of where we are now. Definitely. One thing that stood out to me about Centropy, even though AI usually is this buzzy phrase, this company launched out of South with a lot of influential backers. 
So they had initialized capital, as you mentioned, which is, you know, at that time, it was Reddit's co-founder Alexis Ohanian as the, the bigger face of the fund. And I think for the longest time, people definitely thought that Reddit would be the one to acquire them, or at least the strategic investment in it was some kind of signal that, okay, Reddit's going to benefit from this sort of moderation tool. And so seeing Centropy eventually, it, it will now offer its existing enterprise customers service through the end of September. It shut down its free consumer dashboard earlier this month. We see Discord doing what I think is an offensive move to bring it in its, in its universe and take away some of its investors, which include Twitter, Reddit, Twitch. It takes it away from them, which I think is so spicy. I love that they did that. <laughs> that. That is spicy. But, you know, when you think about Reddit, it's basically a bunch of small communities that are kind of like rolled up into one larger app. And each one of those has its own moderating team. Discord, though, is much more private. You can't see as easily into Discord communities. And they have run into some issues with that historically with some kind of hard right groups. But to me, you know, bringing AI may be a way to not poke eyes, human eyes into every side of Discord, leaving some privacy in place, but still allow for some moderation. So to me, the the hybrid of humans and AI, brilliant. I think it's a great deal. And, you know, Discord is really betting on its long-term future. Another acquisition in the AI space we saw this week was uh, ZoomInfo. Yes. Serious acquisition this week, $575 million for Chorus.ai, which is a sales call evaluation product. So it's an AI system, an AI bot, if you will, that listens to your phone calls, analyzes them, and gives feedback to sales teams about how to optimize. And I thought this was a particularly strategic and interesting acquisition, Alex. What, what were your thoughts? Well, my first thought was, what, why is it so cheap? Because it, it had raised, I think, about $100 million in total. And we all know that Gong.io, or just Gong maybe, a competing product is worth like seven, $7.25 somewhere in there. And so to me, to see this company exit for you know around $600 million just felt a little bit light. And so I'm curious if it was politely losing in the marketplace to, to Gong. But if you're ZoomInfo, a public company worth about $20 billion, and you work in kind of the B2B information space, I can see why this plugs into it. But it, it was, the deal size just stuck out to me. And then also, the only data that I could find about the valuation of the company when it was still independent was like $150 million, which felt wrong given its capital raise. So I can't really tell if it was a win or not, but it was the price that really made me kind of sit back and be confused. Can you hear my gardeners? Yeah. Yes. Oh. It just started. Well, I mean, I, it's going to take, yeah. It's life. It's life, Alex. Totally fine. I can't. Yeah, I'm um, sorry. I was going to say, like, this happened to me this week, too, when I was reading about a different acquisition, which is like, it wasn't going to be the winner. So how does it move horizontally? How does it get more competitive? And I feel like that's how I read this Zoom info deal. But to give a more bullish case about Chorus.ai, when it first launched, it was in that I assume now graveyard of tools that are trying to use AI to make sales calls better. There was at least dozens of companies in this, and we haven't read too many about their acquisitions yet. And so I think an acquisition in general for an AI tool, uh, it's a low bar, but I'm happy to see it as the yeah, resident that, optimist on the show. No, Natasha, <laughs> Natasha is absolutely right. You know, there were so many sales enablement technologies and sales optimization and, and, and SDRs and SDs and all these different categories. I mean, literally dozens and dozens of companies. So it's great to see one major exit. I think what's interesting is the combination. So, you know, they're up against Microsoft Dynamics, yep. uh, CRM, which is the heavyweight in this category. Microsoft, you know, a couple of years ago bought LinkedIn for what, 25 billion bucks was, yeah, um, to connect the kind of the directory data of all those customers to the tracking system to track all those customers. Now it looks like ZoomInfo is connecting its directory data on all those customers to the AI sales enablement technology that allows people to actually sell those customers well. So it's an interesting pivot for ZoomInfo. 
I run into them like I think most people do when you search for names on Google and you're like, oh, Zoom Info. You know, it's like LinkedIn, then Zoom Info. I think they're trying to build out a new business model. And that's great because it's a $20 billion company and they clearly need more growth. Well, okay, then where's the CRM fit into this picture? Because in the Microsoft example, you have CRM plus data plus AI. Here you have data plus AI. Where's the CRM? Does Salesforce buy it? Sounds like the next acquisition coming through. Don't tell them about Kite. We need Kite to work for a couple more weeks. <laughs> Imagine. Uh, oh, my God. And then as a tiny little note about the AI market before we move on, you know, we're just seeing more data come out about people spending more money on AI-based products and services. But really, the, the gist is these companies that were all promised before and potential are now seeing actual real-world results. And that's why these exits are happening. And uh, these are not going to be the last two. Do you guys think that we're going to see another AI boom? Because I feel like it's disappeared from conversations I've had with founders recently. But I'm wondering if we're going to get the influx of all of those phrases again. It's not necessarily a boom. I just think it's locked into every startup today. I mean, Scale.ai just became a $7.2 billion company, uh, what, two months ago. We've seen huge valuations. It, it just It's no longer the feature anymore. That's just the standard. It's like saying we use code to build software. Uh, no one's going to sell that. But like Zoom Info, buying now Chorus.ai and paying later when it closes, Apple is getting into the buy now, pay later space with a new partnership with Goldman Sachs. I was so curious how you were going to land that one. <laughs> you could do a montage of Alex and I's reactions as Danny does transitions. It's just like... It's a good point that we should go back to do video at some point in time because you can watch us slowly wilt as Danny spins out a 17 syllable. I, yeah. I was trying to find a way to say binpull, but binpull doesn't sound really great. I think it's just BNPL. Anyways, what we're talking about is the buy now, pay later, BNPL market. You probably know this from people like Affirm or Klarna or Afterpay. And the news this week was that Apple, a company you've also heard of, may be working to get into the space. Now, why would Apple build a consumer credit product? Well, as it turns out, Apple already has a number of hands in this particular pie. Think about Apple Pay, which is a global payments network. They have an Apple Card, at least here in the States, and they put together Apple Cash or Cash Pay, whatever the hell, Apple product names, Apple Cash, whatever, a way to essentially hold money. So they have kind of like a credit system. They kind of have a checking account. And so to see them build this type of product makes a lot of sense, especially because, guys, they sell high dollar consumer products that people may want to pay for on an installment basis. Natasha, though, you know, when we saw this, other companies took a bit of a hit, Affirm, Afterpay and so forth. Not really a surprise to me to see investors react that way. No, not at all. For a long time, it's felt like this. I mean, Affirm, no one can ever say that Affirm hasn't changed the way we think about buy now, pay later. But I think at a certain point, we're seeing so many Affirm for X's. To me, that means you better add this on or else you're going to be behind. So I think Apple's move wasn't even it being witty or like ahead of the times. I think it's like playing catch up in a way. Here's my thought about this, though. And I I tried to write about this today for the site. But like, there's two kinds of BNPL startups, right? And there's a bunch of players in this space, but there's two big buckets. There's the Klarna's and Smaller's of the world that are trying to provide a mass market consumer-friendly credit option, okay? And they plug into, you know, point-of-sale systems in e-commerce and all around the web. And then there's the more niche-targeted BNPL startups that are trying to bring this method of payment to other areas. And I covered one called WiseTac a while back. And they essentially bring BNPL services to vertical SaaS companies. So if you make software for like plumbers and then plumbers want to offer a service to their customers to let them pay in installments, WiseTech will power that. To me, that is to the left of what Apple is doing. It's not the same thing at all. And so I think those startups are going to be fine. I don't think Apple's news really impacts them. 
but the Affirms, the Afterpays, the Klarna's, and so forth are probably going to rub up a little bit more against what Apple's doing and therefore could be in higher competition with the, the larger company. This just goes back to my core thesis around fintech, which is everyone does everything, right? And, and ultimately, if you own the customer relationship, you supply all the products, all the different things. Apple has a relationship with most of its customers that's very locked in. You use an iPhone to pay. You're already on Apple Pay. You already have your Apple credit card. Why not just add BNPL technology yep. right into that transaction? No firm required. No, no one else involved. I think it's a super smart strategy for Apple. But as we saw, uh, a firm stock is, is, I guess, I wouldn't call it tanking, but it's definitely like lingering downwards over time. Well, it's lingering <laughs> downwards over time, but also it took about a 10% hit from the news, and as did Afterpay. So we saw kind of a repricing of the public BNPL companies. And that really was what got me thinking. I was like, well, startups don't trade, but if all the startups in this space were actually floating, what would have happened to them? And then which would have taken the biggest hit? And of course, Klarna will be going public in the near future. So once it does that, Alex will be on the interwebs showing us how the debut really impacts the investor enthusiasm, which I know is like all of our favorite topics to talk about. (laughs) I I know. I'm really excited about the Klarna debut because Klarna has raised so much money at such high prices lately. It is is a absolute darling of the private money class. And so I want to see how it does. And I think think how it prices will give us a good indication of how worried investors are about this Apple threat. Uh, And as a final note on this before we move on, why are we giving Apple so much credence in regarding its ability to show up in BNPL and make a difference? Well, because PayPal has. And PayPal's pay in four, I think it's called. They've seen enormous volume and, and a lot of growth there. So you can take a company that does something else and bring it to the BNPL world if they have those customer relationships that Danny mentioned and drive a lot of volume. So that's that. Now, uh, Natasha, uh, can you sing? I wish. Uh, I wish I could sing. I can dance. Oh, you can dance. Well, that doesn't really help. We need a funeral <laughs> dirge because the TechCrunch list is dead and it's time to put it in the ground. The TechCrunch list is dead. A year ago, almost down to the day, we, we launched what was called the TechCrunch List, which was a curated list of about 530 ultimately investors that was focused on helping founders find exactly the right investors for them. So it was focused on geography, specialization. So, you know, whether they're a MarTech investor versus a SaaS investor versus a biotech investor, and then stage, making sure that they are actually primed to either handle a pre-product market fit company or a growth stage company. We had a lot of success, hundreds of thousands of readers. Actually, the engagement time was kind of incredible. I think, uh, I don't know if we're supposed to talk about these sorts of things, but it was like a 12-minute average Oh damn! Uh, for reading it. So people like played with the list. They like used it. But the reality is, is that over the last year, VC has just totally changed. It is commodity capital. The specialization no longer matters to people. Geography went away with Zoom. And stage, I mean, who the hell has a stage anymore of investment? It's like even pre-seed funds are investing in growth stage companies these days. So from my perspective, we had a thesis about how people should raise money. The thesis just didn't pan out, or I should say it changed radically and uh, we're recognizing the market. So we turned it off. I flipped it over on WordPress. No one can access it anymore. It's dead. Not to be too earnest. I think it's like, let's take a second to talk about how lists may not be as relevant today as they were a year ago. I mean, I feel like, first of all, we should have known when people were started taking their shirts off on the internet that VC was like, changing, changing. It's all getting truly crazy and like no rules anymore. Anyone can do anything. I feel like it's really signaling something different, which we'll get to in our next section about who's owning the money, who's investing the money and how they're doing it. So over the past week, I have been looking at all the headlines and really noticing something so different than from what I even saw when I started at Crunchbase, which was only two years ago, which is I feel like we've never I've never seen a more diverse emerging fund manager base. And I don't know if you guys remember, but maybe six months ago, we talked about the emerging fund manager scene. Mm -hmm. Some of us were bearish about if those people were actually going to raise 
legitimate institutional funds or just stay at their micro funds. And the past week, if one of us wants to walk through the headlines, has shown that there is reputable big numbers in these decision makers. Yeah, to get a sense of this, just in the last week, we had Female Fiat Founders Fund raise its third fund, $57 million. H Venture Partners raised $10 million for a debut fund focused on science-based brands. Peter Boyce, my old colleague at General Catalyst, spun out, and we found out from a form deem filing that he raised his own $40 million fund for what is called Stellation Capital. And then Nazir Kadri has raised uh, one of the largest debut funds for Solo VC, $62.1 million, anchored by Truist and PayPal. And so you just look across the board, and not only are we seeing some really substantial dollar volumes, these are not small funds, but the diversity of the GPs, it, it's not 2007 anymore. Yeah, no, I and mean, just to put that in perspective, the Female Founders Fund, which by the way, I love that name because I love alliteration. Its first fund was $6 million, its second fund was 25 and its third is 57 so that shows you, I think, that there's more capital available to more diverse GPs. And that's just very exciting to me overall. I think it's great. We even saw Collab Capital. And I remember this because it, it logged in my mind when they announced that they were going to debut with a goal of 50 million and they closed it in exactly a year. And I think that that is still so impressive as well. And I'm, I will continue to cover it and, and be excited about it. But I also would love, I think, you know, maybe a year from now, it's not even going to make us bat our eyes twice because it'll be so normal to see solo diverse GPs raise massive funds. All right. Now we have a couple of funding rounds to talk about. And one thing we're going to bring back up is the idea of virtual HQs. And Natasha, you were so on this beat in the early pandemic because there were so many cool companies building like, like original Pokemon Red style interfaces for walking around the office and talking to your friends when you're not in the same room as them. And then I forgot all about them. And now we're back with Nooks. So is this still a thing? Are these things still hot? What's going on? It's still a thing. I mean, eight months ago, there was a joke in San Francisco, at least, where every engineer was working on a version of a virtual HQ, which for people who don't know, was just a video game like interface where people could work during the day and not just be on Zoom. So imagine having an avatar and toggling through a virtual office and then bumping into people and, and being able to talk in that way instead of what we're doing right now, which is floating heads in, in boxes. So those companies, there was dozens of them at one point. Some of them have raised twice from wow. really impressive investors like Sequoia and Dreesen, and some of them have pivoted. And, and Nooks, which was the most recent seed financed one, just announced this week that it has raised a five million round led by Tola Capital, participation from Floodgate, Julia and Kevin Hartz of Eventbrite. Interestingly, Kevin Hartz has invested in two virtual HQs, which maybe is its own story in itself. But we're seeing now after all of this ton of venture capital firms still have stakes in different virtual HQ startups, which to me, it, it makes it interesting because they all are betting that this is going to be relevant. And so the stakes are continuing to get higher. So I will be, continue to keep covering them. So, But have you heard, though, Natasha, about like usage? Are we seeing more companies stick to these? Do you have any data on people still giving it a yeah, I have two data points. One is that these tools so far, from my understanding, are not being used by all of TechCrunch. They maybe are being used by the equity team at TechCrunch. So they're used by ah. like smaller communities within companies, because I think that's a little easier to pull off. And for us, for example, we're all we're all remote. So it's a little easier in that way to add on this platform to your workflow. It's not as much of a buy-in. The second data point, and this is from a friend I know who's interviewing at a giant tech company who shall not be named. I think a lot of these giant tech companies are currently thinking of ways to make remote and in-person work at the same time, hybrid work. And it's a pain point. They're all thinking about it. So if one of these can pitch correctly then I do think there is a use case more broadly because it's apparently the biggest stress 
for all of these recruiters right now is how do we sell engineers on distributed work? I think the big question for me is most of these are de novo startups. So they're, they're trying to build a virtual HQ platform from the ground up. And I, I've always been curious because I feel like games, the metaverse, virtual reality, all that kind of stuff that goes on in the entertainment world, that's actually where the virtual HQ software is going to come from. It's going to be folks who actually built highly engaging, high quality experiences in the gaming world who then become professional. I'm thinking particularly of like Slack, which started as tiny spec as a game company, and then they sort of migrated over to building a chat app. I'm just a little skeptical that the right approach here is going to be from building like productivity up as opposed to like entertainment engaging quality first. That's fair. One of my favorite companies in the space branch, they are built by all X Minecraft prodigies. Right. That sounds great. That yeah. sounds like the right formula. Exactly. So I, I totally agree, Danny. Also Slack. Slack is a thing that is doing things that are going to be competitive with yeah, these. It's selling to Mark Benioff. Goodbye. Um, so I think though, I think what, what? That's that wasn't true. even that spicy. Yeah. It's one step down from Oracle. Anyways, so here's the thing about Denny's point about gaming companies going enterprise. Does this mean that like Roblox is going to become like enterprise SaaS? And does that mean that enterprise SaaS is going to become a bit more like a gaming company? Everyone's payroll is going to be Robux. Unfortunately, with this transition from in-office to virtual reality is that those in-office meals are no longer going to be available to people. So people are going to have to come up with better food options at home and they might start with foie gras. So my husband hates foie gras ethically and morally and has banned me from ever eating it. So I have to be very... Uh, careful in ever consuming it. And by that, I mean, I've never consumed it. So if you're listening, don't, I've never had it. But assuming <laughs> you have, you know that it's amazing and one of the best pâtés you can possibly eat, which is why I'm super excited about Gourmet. Gourmet raised 10 million in equity and debt from 0.9 in Air Street Capital to basically create a cell-based poultry version of foie gras. What that means is that instead of using vegetables and trying to transmogrify them into some sort of meat substitute, they're actually using stem cells to create the literal cellular structure that foie gras is in order to produce an exactly duplicative product. I just want to point out that Danny was able to pronounce foie gras like 48 times, but he couldn't pronounce gourmet because it's not, <laughs> it's not gourmet. I don't think Danny, they threw a- It's gourmet with a Y, Danny Crayon. Yeah. Oh, see, it wasn't, it wasn't French, see. so he couldn't pronounce it. Uh, I also have not had foie gras, but we do have someone on the show who has a resident vegetarian, Natasha Mascarenas. Tell us oh all about God. it. Oh my God. Yes. So I was in Paris when I was in high school and I ordered ravioli. It was delicious. And I thought foie gras. I saw the gras and I thought grass, Nice. which was ah. very embarrassing in retrospect. And I ate it. I loved it. Came home, realized what I had done. And it haunts me to this day. But it was delicious. I will go on the record to say that. <laughs> They're calling it slaughter-free foie gras. What's particularly fascinating, and I saw this previously with a company I covered called Wild Type, which is in the salmon space, is that they're targeting high-end restaurants. So, so like a lot of these companies, you know, in many cases, it's actually really expensive to produce, particularly early on when you haven't scaled up the, the food production. You need to have a high price point. And so they're trying to provide a really high quality product that could be used in high-end restaurants, particularly in cities like New York, LA, and I think a few others that have banned foie gras. And so they're trying to find that compromise early transactional customer who's willing to buy the product before it has wider distribution with consumers. As a vegetarian, I'm much more bullish on plant-based meat alternatives. And so the next funding round is exciting to me. It's called Next Gen Foods. It is launching its plant-based chicken in the US. And this week announced that it has raised a 20 million in a seed extension round. I'm going to try not to overreact to that price number. But it, we, we just talked about Nugs, I think, a few weeks ago. Yep. This is going to be another competitor. And it's obviously raising... Because, quote from the story, it replicates the aroma and browning of chicken as it cooks. That is just impressive and cool. 
I love yeah, it. Yeah, I'm really excited by the overall like like work we've done here. And uh, did you guys read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. There's this moment when he's discussing the broader like Chicago slaughterhouse scene and how like there are these like scientists making stuff, you know, back then. And I feel like like that was to cover up stuff back in the day. We've now turned food science into this amazing like magical factory because I, I eat too much meat. I do. It's bad for the world. And frankly, I need to give it up. And so I'm excited to see companies like Next Gen Foods come out with stuff that may be eventually the right thing that gets me off of my kill all the chickens thing. That's right. And so their their product, which is called Tyndall, with a lowercase i and everything else capitalized, don't ask me why, I don't know, is actually located in 70 different places in Singapore, wow. Hong Kong, Macau. It's a Singapore-based company. And they're looking to enter the United States in the next 12 months. So the 20 million seed extension is going to go to hiring, I guess, a sales and distribution team here in the United States. So expect that hopefully on the store shelves. But one last company, Panda Express, piloting, this is unbelievable to me, Beyond Meat Orange Chicken. I can't believe that we made it. That just blows my mind. We made it. We made it so as vegetarians. <laughs> we're not going to pretend, right, amongst the three of us that we're above eating at Panda Express when we're at the airport, right? Never will pretend. Love okay. it. Good. So we don't have to be, okay. So I'm totally going to try this, right? We're all going to try this, right? For journalism. Yeah. For, oh, yeah, that, yes. For journalism. <laughs> yes, for journalism. We will do I think it. We can expense a meal. We just can't do it together under the new policy. I can't, I can't watch us do go into Verizon and Apollo jokes this late in the show. But what's, what's important here is that Panda Express has an enormous footprint. There are thousands of these places. And so if this does work for Beyond Meat, we could see an explosion of availability for yet another kind of like meat alternative. I'm excited about this in the same way that I was with the Impossible Whopper and bringing more syphilis out to the world, which it kind of backs up the broader thesis behind all three of these news items. But guys, we are way over time. So we're going to shut up and let everyone get about their weekend. And we will be back on Monday morning. You were all tremendous. Goodbye. everybody. Our dear friend and colleague, Mr. Danny Crichton, is going to be doing a Twitter space. Yes, a Twitter space, not a clubhouse and not a fleet because Twitter killed fleets. Anyways, it's all going down on Tuesday, July 20th at 5 p.m. Eastern. Now, Danny is going to talk to Kathleen Estrich and Emily Kramer from MKT1 about trends in the startup world, how young companies are raising more capital than ever, and of course, how they are keeping up that rapid growth. And I will see you there. <laughs>